0: It's this whole idea of shining a light on something that is going to really uh, educate somebody who's ignorant about a wrongdoing that's happening.
1: Welcome to Journalism History, a podcast that rips out the pages of your history books to re-examine the stories you thought you knew and the ones you were never
0: told. I'm Terry Finneman, and I research media coverage of women in politics.
1: And I'm Nick Hershon, and I research the history of New York sports. And I'm Ken Ward, and I research the journalism history of the Great Plains and Rocky Mountains. And together, we're professional media historians guiding you through our own drafts of history. Transcripts of the show are available online at journalism-history.org podcast. This episode is sponsored by Taylor & Francis, the publisher of our academic journal, Journalism History. The 1900s offer great examples of investigative reporting that have shaken awake audiences, inspired journalists, and strengthened the democratic process in the United States and other places around the globe. But as today's guest explains, there's no reason to limit our attention to the 20th century. In this episode, Dr. Jerry Linozga, an associate professor in Indiana University's Media School, walks us through the development of investigative reporting in the early 1800s by abolitionists, who found themselves searching for new ways to counter lies and disinformation spread by slaveholders and their allies. As Linozga explains, the resulting practices used by abolitionists were very much in line with those used by investigative reporters today. Jerry, welcome to the show. So you start this article about investigative reporting at Watergate. Why why do you start there?
0: Well, this article appeared in a special issue uh, devoted to the history of investigative reporting um, tied to the Watergate anniversary. And um, Watergate is that that big uh, cataclysmic event in American politics that um, for a lot of people, serves as a stand-in kind of idea for um, the power of investigative reporting. Um, and so when I saw the call, I thought, I've got to do something for this because I'm a former investigative reporter. I study the the history of the practice of investigative reporting. Um, and really, my mind went immediately to the abolitionists, but I wanted to situate it in, you know, for purposes of the special issue. And also, um, as a, a kind of a justification for the article that, um, you know, Watergate serves as a touchstone for a lot of people when they think about investigative reporting. But, but it really is a practice that goes back a lot further.
1: Sure. So, uh, as as you mentioned, your focus is on the abolitionists. So, why don't you take us way back and explain to us how did the abolitionists get interested in in investigation more broadly? Right. And and when are we talking about here? And And additionally, are these people that we would recognize as
0: journalists or that we would call journalists? That's a great question. Um, I'll get to the part about whether they thought of themselves as journalists and whether we would think of them as journalists in a second, but just to give you the broad uh, strokes of of the overview, um, abolition uh, as a as a movement really goes back to the late sixteen hundreds. Um, and it really started with the Quakers. And uh, of course, you know, uh, thinking of that, it it was uh, largely a religious movement. Um, and a lot of the critique of slaveholders um, at the time um, was based in, in religion. Um, many of the critiques, many of the pamphlets that were written were biblical exeg- exegesis with the idea of, of uh, you know, trying to persuade people that they were um, sinning by holding people in slavery, um, this, this strategy of moral suasion. And that really gets started in the 1600s. And there's a, you know, a steady stream of abolitionist uh, writing throughout the 1700s. My focus in the article is really on the, the 1830s, which I kind of think of as a second wave of, of abolitionism that takes on more radical uh, tone to it, and um, writers at that point are really thinking about um, exposing the realities of slavery um, as a strategy to to call uh, into call to attention the, the sinfulness uh, of the practice. And so, I'm really focused on uh, some of the writers that are pretty well known, um, such as William Lloyd Garrison, um, Lydia Mar- Maria Child. Uh, the Grimke sisters, Theodore Dwight Weld, in the 1830s, who um, may not have thought of themselves um, explicitly as journalists first, although they certainly uh, were. Many of them wrote for uh, newspapers, for instance. William Garrison, of course, started his own newspaper, so he was a he was a journalist. That word was certainly in use at the time. Um, you know, they were journalists who were who were much different from the ones that we we think of today. They were. Uh, uh, prone to fiery rhetoric, emotional appeals. They certainly had a religious drive and a religious motivation. Um, so they may have thought of themselves more as um, evangelistic or even activist in a way. Um, but certainly, what they did, uh, you know, if you stripped it of all the other things, it certainly meets all the the sort of qualifications of the definitions we have of investigative reporting today. So I think we would recognize what they do did as as journalism and that's certainly what what my argument in the article is
1: so especially in the earlier parts that we're talking about here the earliest uh, era of, of this type of reporting in the 1800s when we say investigation what what types of investigations are they doing what what information are they looking for and how are they presenting it to the audience
0: in the beginning um, once this this uh, emphasis on evidence really uh, hits its stride in the 1830s there, they're looking at all the sorts of things that um, an investigative reporter today might look at. They look at official uh, records from judicial proceedings, for instance. Um, they uh, get testimony from witnesses, interviews, in other words. Um, they go look at uh, newspapers, um, sermons, uh, you know, pamphlets, uh, all sorts of things that could serve as tangible. Uh, sort of credible authoritative evidence of something that that was going on with slavery as opposed to earlier accounts, which certainly were, uh, you know, were not, uh, certainly were interested in exposing realities of slavery, but they were much more sort of emotionally based. They would make uh, um, sort of statements about um, uh, the cruelties of slavery without uh, really explicitly engaging with the idea of here's how we know uh, what we're telling you about slavery, and so um, basically, they were doing all the things that journalists do today—that investigative journalists today, going and talking to people, looking at the documentary record, um, and not only looking at those things and um, incorporating it into their work, but re- into their work, but really explicitly um, talking about that—that that, uh, the importance of the evidence, um, both in their publications and in their correspondence uh, with each other about how to how to do this work.
1: And, and can you give us a sense, what does the abolitionist press look like? And the, uh, your article really focused there on the 1830s. Um, are we talking about lots of newspapers, pamphlets? What, what, what does it look like? What would we be reading this material in?
0: It's definitely both. There are a lot of newspapers, such as the Liberator, that comes along in eighteen thirty one, um, uh, and a lot of pamphlets, such as uh, Genius of Universal Emancipation. I might think of as a as a little bit of a of a hybrid there, but that one starts in eighteen twenty one with Benjamin Lundy, um, and the American um, Anti Slavery Society in the mid eighteen thirties. Um, it had been around for a while and had been publishing pamphlets. Uh, but it really put on a, a hard press in the middle of the 1830s to blanket the country in in pamphlets. So these would be, you know, some some one-off publications, uh, you know, folk that that would be short. Um, they were not necessarily periodicals. Sometimes they would be republished, um, but they blanketed the the country in in more than a million pamphlets. For instance, so we're talking about a lot of different things, um, not just sort of traditional newspapers as such.
1: Sure. So. In your paper, you argue that that Garrison's and I think that's the the book or pamphlet and the line there seems so so difficult. Right. But this this publication called Thoughts on African Colonization, Mm -hmm. you argue this is a turning point in investigative reporting. So can you tell us a little bit more about Garrison and the Liberator, his newspaper, and and then explain to us why was Thoughts on African Colonization, this this book or pamphlet, so important in this uh, development of investigative reporting?
0: Sure. So. Garrison, like many abolitionists, um, started out in the 1820s with the idea that we can we can do this gradually. And we might do it, uh, we might ab- abolish slavery, for instance, by um, uh, taking freed uh, former slaves and uh, formerly enslaved people and sending them away, sending them out of the country, um, colonizing them, in other words, in another place. And that was um, a... Fairly probably the predominant um, line of thinking in the 1820s um, uh, among white abolitionists, I should say. Um, but there was also at this at the at the time in the 1820s a sort of developing um, um, black protest uh, movement that that uh, involved pamphleteers and conventions and societies um, that African Americans were. Uh, were founding at the time that were making the argument against uh, colonization they didn't want to leave the country and they didn't want gradual emancipation, which they thought really um, was only allowing uh slavery to to continue uh you know in perpetuity um and garrison and others but garrison uh you know kind of in a leading role became uh, persuaded by these arguments um and so in eighteen thirty one when he founded Um, his newspaper, The Liberator, he really um, had uh, made a full transformation from a gradualist to what was called immediatist, uh, calling for immediate abolition. Um, And he really, uh, to to, uh, start off his uh, crusade with The Liberator, he turned his attention to the American Colonization Society, the ACS, which was the organization that was um, uh, advocating for this gradualist uh, position. Um, And he put together a a book called Thoughts on African Colonization, published in 1832. It was more than 200 pages. He talked repeatedly about evidence, such a mass of evidence that he pulled from um, publications of the ACS, sermons, conversations with people, and uh, a lot of articles from uh, the African Repository, which was the, the house newspaper of the American Colonization Society. Uh, and really spent a lot of time juxtaposing the claims with reality that these were people who claimed to be against slavery. But really, if you peel back the, um, you, you know, the the veneer there under the surface, um, it's a lot of support for slavery. Uh, they, they weren't going to oppose the idea of uh, holding people as property, for instance. Um, and so he juxtaposed um, uh, these uh, stated views um, with what was really going on in the sermons and so forth. Um, and the lack of credibility of the colonizationists with um, extensive, uh, exhaustive footnotes, um, and then he uh, kind of countered that with the uh, the idea that the evidence he was presenting was credible and authoritative, um, basically hanging uh, the, colonizations on, the colonizationists on their own words. And so this was a new idea, right? Or at least relatively new.
1: Um, c- can you tell us more about that? Do you get a sense were there were there other places where this type of verification was occurring in the press, or is this a fairly unique episode that came out of this abolitionist movement? Do you, did you get a sense of that during your research?
0: My my argument is that this is um, this is innovative, um, not to say that there weren't. Some one-off examples of uh, people doing investigative reporting, what we would call investigative reporting, because by the way, that doesn't—that phrase, investigative reporting or investigative journalism—doesn't even come along until the mid-20th century, uh, the, the best mm-hmm. I can tell. Um, but people were doing uh, exposure journalism, whatever they called it, um, hundreds of years ago, and certainly in the colonies before. Uh, you know the United States was founded uh you know there were examples of things um, uh you know where where uh, reporters had uh, you know journalists or printers had exposed um, hidden wrongdoing by by using documents um but not in a systematic way and so I really do think what happens with uh, the abolition writers and explicitly so is that they're talking about a method. Um, for expo- not only exposing wrongdoing, but for documenting uh, the claims about that wrongdoing, and you don't see it in a real systematic, sort of broad way until it uh, it comes into its own as part of this um, this activist movement of abolitionists.
1: So, is it sustained? Right. So we see this idea pop up here. Uh, it's it's sort of. Um we can we can point to thoughts on African colonization as a model of that. Does it continue? Does it spread throughout the abolitionist movement? Do other people take up this idea of, okay, it's not just about presenting information, but presenting verified, uh, compelling information to actually persuade people that our cause is, is not only just, but correct.
0: Yeah, so thoughts on African colonization is published in 1832, and I do think it spreads, at least in the immediate decade. And uh, one of the uh, key figures I focus on is Theodore Dwight Weld, who was an anti-slavery um, agent. He was commissioned by the American Anti-Slavery Society in 1834 as the uh, the agent for Ohio. And his commission uh, explicitly instructed him uh that his uh, his goal was to show the public the true character of slavery, to expose hidden truth with facts, and, and facts is in all capital letters in the commission. Um, and it also explicitly referenced um, Garrison's thoughts on African colonization as, as a model um, for doing that, for for how to build an evidence-based argument. And so Weld and others, uh, other writers in the 1830s, um, do use that as a model. And um, it is explicitly used as a model for what I think is kind of the masterwork of the of the era, which is uh, American slavery as it is, Testimony of a Thousand Witnesses, which Weld published with his wife and his uh, sister-in-law in 1839. And it, uh, it, it is really a, um, an amazing document to read. It's what got me interested in this um, this whole idea in the first place, because there was a an actually circulating copy of the original printing in our our university library at Indiana University, which I was just amazed by, <laughs> and reading it is uh, is just astonishing. It's it's a compendium of of facts and evidence, um, footnotes and annotation, uh, and it's just a fascinating thing to read.
1: Well, so let's let's explore that just a little bit more, because as I was reading your article, Weld's approach seems fairly sophisticated, right? And, and it acknowledges, or it seems to me to acknowledge that eyewitness testimony isn't enough, which when you read some of the examples that you provided in, in the article alone, right, just a few, um, you know, the, the testimony uh, is, is extremely compelling, but they're recognizing in this era that eyewitness testimony isn't enough. It needs verification. There needs to be more work behind it to actually be persuasive how did they come to that view? What made them, you know, where where did that spark come from that said, okay, the stories aren't enough. We need proof behind them.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I think there's a, just a, a, uh, a sense that develops over, you know, more than a decade of uh, advocating for abolition that, you know, the the, uh, the Southern plantation class is not just sitting there, you know, Reading and, and listening to things, they're they're talking back, and in their um, in their arguments, they 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 make arguments about uh, well, the myth. You know, you've, you may have heard the phrase the myth of the the happy slave. This is the the idea that people who are enslaved on plantations are really um, happy. They're well-treated, they're well-fed and taken care of. And really, um, they're in the position in society that is the best and highest um, use for them. And so there's this rhetoric that is being put forth by um, by Southerners, and in in many cases, uh, you know, being, um, if not avidly believed, being sort of allowed for in the North among people who may, may not have gone to the South, they don't really have a sense of of what things are really like. And even um, those who have gone there, um, as um, Angelina Grimke pointed out in one of her speeches, she said, you know, people sometimes go to the, to the South and they um, enjoy Southern hospitality, but they never really peer into the dark corners. And so what we need is um, not just arguments and logic, but we need uh, testimony and we need facts. And eyewitness testimony was part of that. Um, but it was much more powerful when it was um, verifiable, um, and so, uh, in some ways, the the evidence from um, you know fugitive uh, slave ads, for instance, that were run uh, you know in in southern papers all the time, um, describing the the terrible injuries that um, some of these fugitives bore from uh, their time uh, working on plantations and so forth. Um, those sorts of evidence uh, could be much more powerful uh, than uh, the eyewitness testimony alone. And so when they were putting together this book, American Slavery as It Is, they sent out, uh, Theodore Dwight Weld sent out a form letter around the country to uh, as many people as he can think of, abolitionists and people who live in, lived in the South, um, seeking evidence, testimony. And uh, the some of the, the rhetoric is just... Um, Incredible, I think, uh, you know, as, a, as a, a person who teaches investigative reporters today, I think about um, a quote that he said uh, uh, that could be a good um, kind of rallying cry for investigative reporters today. Give facts a voice and cries of blood shall ring till deaf ears tingle. It's this whole idea of shining a light on something that is going to really um, uh, educate somebody who's ignorant about uh, a wrongdoing that's happening. Sure
1: well the the abolitionist movement splinters, if I understand right, soon after the publication of that that book by Welder, that pamphlet, um, American Slavery as it is. So if the abolitionist movement kind of splinters, how is this this like thought technology of verification perpetuated? How does it continue and and, and sort of diffuse throughout journalism?
0: Well, one, I think it uh, it it's there in the background. It's there in the history of journalistic practice, and I think um, mainstream uh, journalists uh, are paying attention. And so, perhaps a, a decade or so after um, American slavery, as it is, uh, gets published, for instance, you start to see uh, some exposes in mainstream newspapers of the horrors of slavery, the evils of slavery. Um, I don't have a, a, you know, a a record of correspondence that were, you know, or diaries of these journalists from the mid 1800s that, uh, you know, professed to uh, kind of owing a debt of gratitude to these abolitionists for, for pioneering a method. But my, my hunch is that they're, they're certainly inspired by and drawing from, uh, those practices that were established a decade or so before. And then throughout the 19th century, um, you see, uh, you know, examples of the documentary method uh, being used by uh, a number of different journalists. Uh, you know, there's a wave of uh, sort of a crusade reporting that happens in the 1870s. Um, uh, and, and then we kind of steam into the, the turn of the 19th into the 20th century with the muckraking movement and uh, all of those are not really that far removed from uh, the abolitionist uh, efforts to to sort of pioneer this method of uh, connecting the exposure to uh, the idea of evidence so with all
1: this in mind then how how ultimately do you think our understanding of investigative reporting today should change based on what you present in this article from from the abolitionist movement?
0: I just want people to have uh, uh, another touchstone for thinking about uh, investigative reporting um, as uh, you know a critical piece of, of journalism, which is itself kind of a critical piece of, of democratic governance. I think I want there to be a, a, a different uh, touchstone in addition to Watergate, which is a touchstone for a whole generation of people, maybe the bit, especially the, the baby boomer generation. And and there are other more recent touchstones, such as the Spotlight movie about the Boston Globe investigation into, uh, you know, abuses by the Catholic uh, priests and the Boston Archdiocese. Those are touchstones that make people think about um, what the potential is for investigative reporting for journalism, really, to have um, uh, some sort of power in in society. And I think um to the extent that we kind of limit our our view of of those things as being you know uh twenty years ago or fifty years ago, that just limits our 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 sense of the the history uh in general, and I think it's important to kind of get that right uh to know that um you know Woodward and Bernstein didn't necessarily innovate things that they were doing in the seventies um that these things have been going on for a while, sure. Well, uh, listeners of the show know we have one last
1: question that we like to ask all of our guests. I'm interested to hear your response. Jerry, why, in your opinion, does journalism history matter?
0: Well, really relating to the the answer I just gave you about um, uh, investigative reporting, uh, journalism has been called the dialogue of democracy. I think David Broder said that. And my own uh, advisor, Dave Nord, Um, called journalism, the literature of politics. And so if you think about uh, democracy as an important thing in America and journalism as the literature of that thing, um, then it becomes important to really understand that history. And I would say in general, you know, history matters uh, to know where we've been, how we got here, uh, for instance. And Um, given that uh, we live in a system of democratic governance and journalism is the means by which people um, kind of understand uh, that system, I think it's really important to understand the history of it as well. And it can really inform um, how how we uh, approach the practice of journalism, for instance, today, and the way we think about how journalism ought to be a part of that political ecosystem. And so it can can really serve as a way that we think about, for instance, um, how do we, um, what do we do to make journalism survive into the future?
1: Absolutely. Well, Jerry, I, I really appreciate you being on the show. Thank you so much. Thank you, Ken. Really appreciate the conversation. Well, that's it for this episode. Thanks for tuning in and be sure to subscribe to our podcast. You can also follow us online on Twitter at jhistoryjournal. That's all one word. Until next time, I'm your host, Ken Ward, signing off with the words of Edward R. Murrow. Good night and good luck.